This is last week in our Hinges series, and each week, uh, Jerry and I have attempted to give you a summary of several foundational doctrines uh, of our faith, and today I want to focus on an overview of eschatology. Uh, Eschatology is the study of what the Bible says is going to happen in the end uh, times. So if you're a dad and you're here and your kids drug you here, you don't normally come to church on Sunday, I want to say welcome, glad that you came, and uh, relax. Because, you know, I don't know if you've noticed this, but um, Mother's Day is always a warm, cheerful sermon from a pastor. It's always just really warm, and moms just walk out going, yeah, I'm pretty much awesome, that's good. Dads, on the other hand, and, I, and I've looked at my own ministry, and I realize I've done this, that with women, I will just, oh, you're so wonderful, you're so awesome, and you are. And then it comes to men, and I don't know if it's just me, but man, I will beat the, just beat them on Father's Day. And it's like, happy Father's Day, right? And so I'm sure a lot of you came in here and you go, okay, just give it to me, give it to me. I know, I know. All right, Relax. We're talking about eschatology. We're talking about end times. All right? And so just sit back and uh, hopefully uh, enjoy. Well, many treat eschatology as an area of theology that is to be uh, avoided. And I want you to know that eschatology, the study of end times, it really is not as crucial as the doctrine of Christ, uh, theology proper, the doctrine of God. We've talked about bibliology a few weeks ago, the doctrine of the Bible, We've talked about soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Eschatology is not as important as those doctrines, and yet, having said that, it is not unimportant to a biblical worldview. Now, how we understand eschatology has an impact on how we should live our lives and what we are to expect uh, to happen as a part of God's plan in the end. One Bible teacher says that we study eschatology not to simply fill our heads with information, but to change our hearts. And I think that there's a lot of people that have studied eschatology just to simply amuse themselves, uh, just to simply impress people that they know terms and they know things that other people uh, don't know. We don't study it for that reason. We study it in order to change our hearts. There's two common errors that I think happen When we study eschatology, one is that we can slip into unwarranted speculation. I believe that this has happened very often in our evangelical circles. Uh, If you're like me, you grew up in the age of movies. I know some of you did because I've talked to you about this. Movies like A Distant Thunder, A Thief in the Night. We watched that. We used to watch that on New Year's Eve, you know, and you go, Happy New Year. Wow. I mean, that was deep, right? And most recently, the movie Left Behind and and all kinds of other things that that evangelicals have put out based on our eschatological views. And I think it's very easy to make a common error, and that is to slip into unwarranted speculation, where we speculate about things that we really don't know are truth. The other error, though, is that we slip into shoulder-shrugging cynicism. In other words, we just kind of shrug our shoulders and go, I really don't know. I I don't really understand it. I really don't know. I'm not really sure it's possible to know. I've talked to people that are supposed to be smart and they're supposed to know these things and they seem to disagree with one another. And so we just go, I really don't know. I'm really not going to study it. I'm really not going to take an interest in it. And this causes us to decentralize Jesus from our lives 
rather than living in view of the imminent return of Christ. And what I want you to understand uh, today is this, that at the end of the day, and we will not cover everything relating to eschatology in the few minutes that we have this morning, but at the end of the day, we believe that we, uh, that we, we believe that in the imminent return of Jesus Christ, we believe that he could come at any moment. And we have to be careful not to swing in either one of those other extremes. We have to study prophecy carefully, but at the end of the day, what we do know, what we do understand, what all those that have a high view of Scripture will agree to, and that is that we believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Now, in our new series that Jerry and I are going to start uh, next week called You Asked For It, you're going to, make sure, you, you're going to want to make sure that you're here, by the way, uh, next week. Uh, Jerry and I are going to start the series uh, off uh, together, and we're going to be answering uh, a lot of questions over the next uh, several uh, weeks here in the summer. And in a couple of those weeks, we're going to talk about uh, heaven in particular, and we're going to talk about the judgment uh, seat of Christ and, and some other things as it relates to eschatology. So this morning, I really want to focus on just a brief overview of end times And I want to focus in particular on the aspect of the rapture. Now, there has been a well-intended overemphasis on end times over the years. In fact, really from the first century, even until most recently this week, I read something where people have prognosticated. They have come up with their ideas about when the end is going to come. Places all over the world, people from all walks of life, People uh, with names like Martin of Tours, Rodolphus Glaber, Joseph Smith, David Koresh, they've all, all speculated on when the end was going to come. There was a monk that was named Rodolphus Glaber, translated Ralph the Bald. Guess why? He described a wave of apocalyptic worries in the decades around the year AD 1000. And according to Ralph the Bald, he had seen a blazing sign in the heavens that predicated a mysterious fire at the monastery, and fears of impending doom and tribulation deepened when a famine struck on the 1,000-year anniversary of the death of Jesus. But despite the worries, the monastery was repaired, and the famine passed, and Ralph remained bald, and life went on. And if you were to look over the centuries, that's what's happened to many of these different uh, viewpoints that have come with regards to when the end would come. Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon Church, claimed that Jesus would establish the New Jerusalem in Jackson County, Missouri. In the process, he launched that worldwide religious moment, movement that denied essential biblical truths uh, about Jesus. And still today, Mormons uh, expect that Jesus will return somewhere along the eastern outskirts of Kansas City, Missouri. Now, I've been to Kansas City, Missouri, and if you're from there, please excuse this, but I don't think that's where Jesus is coming back. I just don't. There's a place, Carol, amusement park there called World's Fun. He might show up there, but he's probably not going to happen. Probably about three hours north, Nebraska. That could happen. Jesus could choose to come back there, but probably not Kansas City, Missouri. Moving into the 20th century, in 1987, a retired NASA engineer published a pamphlet that he called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. Uh, People bought it, bought the pamphlet. It didn't happen. So in 1989, he released a new pamphlet, 
And people bought that, actually. And recently, I looked on Amazon. There's a copy of that pamphlet that is available, if you want it, for $50. Now, wouldn't you think that if you said 88 reasons why Jesus is going to come back in 1988, and he doesn't come back in 1988, and then you write a follow-up pamphlet, who, in their right mind, pays 50 bucks for that pamphlet on Amazon? It is our curiosity about the end times. And even most recently, in fact, just this week, Somebody forwarded me an email, the thoughts of a prognosticator that this September, mark it on your calendars, would be the end. Here's what I have said for a long time, that if you see somebody, some man, some woman, some group of people that give you a date when they believe that Christ is going to return, you do know this, that's the day he will not return, right? How do you say, you say, how do you know that? Well, Mark chapter 8 and verse 32 says this, but concerning that day or that hour referring to the rapture, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven. If the angels in heaven don't know, Joseph Smith doesn't know either. The prognosticator that I read this week, he doesn't know either. Jesus said, only the Father. In other words, we don't know when he's coming back, but we know he is. Now here's what Jerry and I have tried to do over the last several weeks. As Jerry talked about the doctrine of sin, and then as I talked about the doctrine of salvation, to help you understand that this world is not how God originally intended it to be. In fact, just this week, as Matt uh, alluded to earlier, uh, the events in Charleston, South Carolina, should uh, do, uh, at the very least, it should cause you to say, this is not the way that God intends for this world to be. Sin has caused a lot of pain. It's caused a lot of disappointment. We know that the world is broken and that it's crumbling. And let me tell you, if you're here this morning and your hope is in this present world, you are going to be disappointed. If you believe that ultimately there is some politician that's going to come on the scene and they're going to be our savior, you are going to be disappointed because this world is broken. In fact, Paul said it in Romans chapter 8 and verse 22. He said, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This place is broken. Men and women and children were broken. And here's really the really cool thing. The wonder of it is that God writes the final chapter. He's decided how he will restore the earth to what he intended originally for it to be. And then we ruined it with sin. He writes that final chapter. And one day, everything again is going to be as it should be. And that's really important for you to understand. We'll refer back to that here in just a few minutes. So here's what I want to do. I recognize that there are some of you that are here this morning... And you love the study of eschatology, of prophecy. If you're in the house this morning and that's you, just raise your hand right now. Because I know there's some of you. You love it. You love to read. If something new comes out, you want to read it. You want to grab a hold of it. You try to reconcile everything. You've looked at the timelines of the book of Revelation. And you like that it's in chronological order. And you just, mm, if a new movie comes out, you're going to see it. You just love the study. Others of you, you're new in your faith. And some of the things I'm going to mention this morning is going to go, woo, Things are going to go whizzing by you at a million miles an hour, and you're going to go, I don't know what he's talking about, all right? I get that. And then there's some of you that are going to be in between. So what I want to do is I want to give you a brief overview and um, give you some words of instruction with regards to eschatology, and then I'm going to tell you where I am uh, today in my thinking, in my understanding, all right? Fair enough? All right, so up on the screen, you're going to see a chart 
This is a very simple chart. Really, I could show you 72 charts like this, and they would get down into minutia. This one is general. Um, the Bible has a lot to say about the end times. In fact, almost every book of the Bible somehow refers to prophecy, to end times. And taking all of those things into consideration, organizing them, it can be difficult. And so this is just a, a, just a little, little tiny snapshot. We believe, obviously, that God's work uh, in Israel represented in the Old Testament all right, and then we know that the Christ there, the, the cross there, is the first coming of Jesus Christ when he was born and he ministered uh, on the earth for thirty-three years, and then he suffered, bled, died on the cross, and was resurrected. And I would hold to a position that says, right now we are in what we refer to as the church age, right where it says today, this is God's work uh, with the church. Ultimately, what we are waiting to happen is we're waiting for the rapture. That's when Christ will remove all born-again believers from the earth in an event that we know as the rapture. All of those of us that have trusted in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we will be taken away to be with Jesus. Those that have not trusted in Christ alone as their Savior will go through what's referred to as the Great uh, Tribulation. In heaven, believers are going to be participating in the judgment seat of Christ, won't be judged for our sins. We're going to be judged for what we've done for the cause of Christ. That is when we will receive rewards. Along with that, during that time period, is going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. Don't know what it's going to, what's going to be on that buffet. I can only speculate, and I have a lot of speculation with regards to that, but I'm not going to become one of these prognosticators. Pretty sure Lost Trace is going to be catering at least a portion of the, of the buffet that's going to be there. Uh, Maybe a little city barbecue uh, on the other end. Various sundry things that are going to be there. That's what's going to be happening in in heaven. The Antichrist here on earth during the tribulation period is going to come into power and he's going to sign a covenant with Israel for approximately seven years. We read that in Daniel chapter 9. And during the tribulation, there's going to be terrible wars. There's going to be famines, plagues, natural disasters. God is going to be pouring out his wrath against sin, evil, and wickedness. At the end of that seven-year tribulation period of time, um, the Antichrist will launch a final attack on Jerusalem that's going to be culminating in the Battle of Armageddon. We use that terminology in our culture pretty freely, all right? But this is the true Battle of Armageddon. Jesus is going to return with us. He's going to destroy the Antichrist and his armies. He's going to cast them into the lake of fire, Revelation 19. Christ is going to bind uh, Satan in the abyss for a thousand years. And God, at that point, Jesus is going to rule his earthly kingdom for a 1,000-year period of time. We refer to that as the millennium or the millennial kingdom. If you're reading your Bibles in Revelation chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through 6, I believe personally we get a very vivid account of what that millennial kingdom is going to look like. Now, some believe that we're living in the millennial kingdom right now. Um, I have very good friends that believe that are what we refer to, and we're going to talk about this here in just a moment, they are amillennial, meaning they don't think it's necessarily a a literal thousand years. They don't think it's going to happen after the tribulation period of time. They believe that we're in the millennial kingdom right now. My question for my friends who hold to that view is based on what I read in Isaiah chapter 11, and I read in Isaiah 65. You remember you read there that in that day, during that kingdom, the lion is going to lie down with the lamb. And so I say to my friends who are amillennial, I say to them, I want you to bring a little lamb 
and I want you to let the little lamb lie next to a ferocious lion. And let's see what happens. And then we'll know whether or not we're actually now currently living in the millennial kingdom. I know some of you are out, out there who are studies of, students of eschatology are saying, that's pretty simple. That's who I am. I'm pretty simple, all right? That's how I put it together and go, if I'm currently living in the millennial kingdom, that should take place, and I don't see that happening. Um, at the end of the thousand years, Satan is going to be released. He's going to be defeated again and then cast into the lake of fire uh, for all of eternity. Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 10. Christ then is going to judge all unbelievers at that judgment that we refer to as the great white throne judgment. And at the great white throne judgment, uh, the only thing that's going to be judged there is what you've done with Jesus. If you're here this morning and you don't have a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ, that is your greatest fear. That is your greatest fear when God simply says, what did you do with my son? That's going to be the issue of judgment at that point. And those who have not trusted in Christ alone as their Savior will be cast into the lake of fire. Christ is then going to usher in a new heaven and a new earth and the new Jerusalem, the eternal dwelling place of believers. And it is at that point that God does what he says he will going to, he's going to do, and he makes everything brand new, just as it was intended to be. And there we read in Revelation chapters 21 and 22 that there there's going to be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more death. And that's going to be awesome. And that's the state that we will dwell in as followers of Jesus Christ. We will dwell in for all of eternity. Now, there's about 40 hours of instruction in 10 minutes. I defy you to find somebody else who can do that, right? Uh, There's a lot more that we could say, but the bottom line is that we believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. We believe that the next thing on the prophetic calendar is that Christ could return. And there are four main views of end times in evangelical circles And I want to quickly summarize them for you. Now, again, some of you will just eat this up. You've got your little things out, and you're going, oh, I've heard of that before. I I know what he's talking about. Others of you, it's going to whiz by you, all right? But I want to give you four main views of end times in evangelical uh, circles. Uh, Those are amillennialism. I just described that. There is no literal 1,000-year reign of Christ here on the earth. We are in that millennial kingdom uh, right now. There's post-millennialism. There will be a millennium, but it will be later on. And it's not a literal thousand-year period of time. Then there is what we refer to as dispensational premillennialism. If you want to impress your friends, learn that phrase. Just throw it out there. You don't have to know what it means. Just say it, and they're going to be impressed, all right? Dispensational premillennialism. And then we have what's referred to as historical premillennialism. Now, all of those different views agree on several things. Number one, we agree that Jesus is going to return physically. He is going to come back for us. And at the end of the day, here's what I want you to understand. I know some of you aren't interested in this, but you've got to get this, all right? You've got to understand this. At the end of the day, we need to be convinced of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that I'm going to say this morning that would separate us is if you do not believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. If you believe, for example, that you're an annihilationist and that ultimately you just die and you just cease to exist, you and I are not on the same page with what the Bible teaches. You may have a different view of the millennial kingdom, different view of the rapture than I have. We can still fellowship. We can still be friends, all right? But we need to believe that Jesus will return physically. And all of these views do that. All of them also believe that there will be a tribulation period. 
All right? Uh, as an amillennialist, the tribulation occurs anytime Christians are persecuted or wars or disasters occur. So if you're an amillennialist and you believe we're currently living in the kingdom, you see what the tribulation period uh, looks like. With a dispensational premillennialist, um, we believe there's going to be a tribulation as I just described to you. But we all believe that there will be a tribulation period of time. Some of those view, views believe that Christians will go through. Others believe that Christians will not be present. We also believe that at the end of the day, those who are saved are those that have trusted in Christ alone as their Savior. Those views were held at different times. Uh, amillennialism has been with us since AD 300s, uh, 400s. Uh, postmillennialism has been with us since about the 300s. Interesting, those of you that would re, uh, classify yourselves as um, uh, dispensational premillennialists, that wasn't really until the 1800s that people had that view. The earliest view is a historical premillennialist. And so where we disagree is on what that thousand-year reign of Christ is. Will there be a literal thousand-year millennium? We disagree on how Israel fits into a prophetic calendar but there are a lot of things that we agree on. And I know a lot of you would like me to stop right there, and you would really like me to get into the weeds of that, and I'm not going to do that this morning. I want to tell you this, that there are good, solid uh, evangelicals, great Bible teachers, theologians, pastors uh, that share each of these views. I have really good friends that differ uh, from me uh, with regards to their view of end times. And... um, uh, most of them are smarter than me, which is really concerning, right? When you have somebody that's smarter than you and they believe something different, it just kind of messes with you a little bit, doesn't it? As long as I think I'm smarter, then I go, well, the reason you believe that is because you're not as smart as me. But when I think you're smarter than me and you have a different view, it causes me to, right? You, that's where you are too. Pastor Mark Dever uh, said it this way. He's a pastor up in the D.C. area. He said, so if you're a pastor and you're listening to me or reading this, You understand me correctly if you think I'm saying you're in sin if you lead your congregation to have a statement of faith that requires a particular millennial view. He's writing to pastors and he's basically saying, if you as a pastor require as a test of fellowship in a church that you have a certain eschatological view other than the imminent return of Christ, then you are leading your congregation in a wrong way. And I would say to that, amen. Now, I know some of you this morning, you just want me to tell you what to believe, okay? And uh, on a lot of subjects, I'm going to tell you what the Bible teaches, and we're going to preach it dogmatically. Jerry and I will both do that. Um, When we talk about um, who God is, we believe that there is one God in three persons. We believe that the Bible is the inspired, infallible, uh, inerrant word of God, and it can be trusted. We believe that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone. But when it comes to the doctrine of eschatology, we believe one thing dogmatically, and that is we believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. That's what we know to be true. And having studied this, and I have uh, studied this, I have pieces of paper on the wall that says I'm supposed to know a lot about these things. I studied it years ago to get that paper, and I continue to study these things. And here's the disclaimer that I make. And by the way, I've made this at other times in my teaching ministry here at Northwest. Um, I am a student of the word, just like I hope you are, right? Uh, We've talked a lot about you being self-feeders, you being into the word and you knowing and understanding what God says for yourself, not just being spoon-fed on a Sunday morning. 
You need to be students of the word. That's what I am. That's what Jerry is. That's what Matt is. We are continually learning. As the Spirit of God, we talked about uh, about a year ago. In fact, a year ago, May, we talked about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and his ministry of illumination, right? Him helping us to understand Scripture. And as a follower of Jesus, as you read and study his word, that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit makes sense of this book to you. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to tell you where I am today, all right? And I'm telling you, if you talked with me maybe two years from now, I may tell you something just a little bit different. And I want to humbly say to you that I'm going to continue to study this doctrine of eschatology. And if I change my mind on anything, I'm going to tell you. And I know for some of you that really bothers you because you just want me to tell you what to believe with regards to this. And I can't do that, all right? I'm going to tell you what I've become convinced of at this particular uh, moment, and, um, and hopefully you'll, you'll respect that and appreciate that. And if you have a different view than me, um, we can go sit down and we can have lunch together, and I'll explain to you how you have a misunderstanding of Scripture. I'll do all of that for you, all right? But at the end of the day, I will listen to you and I will learn from you on this subject. You come to me and you tell me that this is not the Word of God, that it's not inerrant, that it cannot be trusted, I will not listen to you, all right? I will label you as a heretic, If you're a student and you want to learn, I will do my best to convince you, but you will not influence me. I will die for that doctrine. I won't die for what I'm telling you this morning other than I believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. All right? Now you say, well, why did you have to say all that? Well, because some of you have been in churches where there are pastors who will die for these things. I ain't one of them. All right? You're not going to put a bullet in my head for some of the things that I'm going to tell you here this morning. My view of end times, having said all that, would be described as dispensational premillennial. All right? Pretty impressive, isn't it? And I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Now, uh, you say you lost me already, uh, so I want to explain. I want to talk to you just real briefly about what the rapture is. The rapture is the event that marks the beginning of the end of this world as we know it and the beginning of eternity. Some of you have heard that word. In fact, you've seen pictures probably hanging on your grandma's wall probably in the eating area, all these people, you've seen the pictures, right? They're floating up, you know, one sitting at the dinner table, and they're going, where'd they go? And they're all floating up, you know, through the roof going, I guess I've been left behind. You've seen the picture of the airplane uh, in the air, and the pilot, you know, one of them, hopefully, hopefully one of them is an unbeliever, right? (laughs) Especially if you're an unbeliever on the back of the plane, right? You've seen all those pictures, you know what all of that looks like. This word rapture comes from Paul's phrase that he uses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, where he talks about being caught up. The words caught up are translated from a Greek word which means to carry off or to snatch away or to grasp hastily. And when we refer to the rapture, we refer to the return of the Lord for us to meet him in the air. It really is the idea of a conquering king coming back and us coming out of a city uh, to greet him. Now, we speak also of two things. We speak of the rapture, and then we we speak of the second coming. The second coming is after uh, that tribulation period when Christ comes back to the earth with us, sets up his kingdom for a thousand years. We need to differentiate between those two events. They're distinct. There's the rapture and the second coming of Christ. Now, everyone who takes a, a high view of Scripture believes in the return of Jesus. And a careful reading of Scripture makes it very clear that Jesus will return for us. And there are a couple of foundational Scriptures, just a couple of texts that I want to give to you. Some of you are very familiar with these. Others of you aren't. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 14. 
This is a passage that many of you are familiar with, where Jesus is talking to his disciples before the crucifixion. He knows what's going to happen. He's starting to say things that they're getting really uncomfortable with. They're, getting, they're getting to, starting to grasp the idea that he's going to go away. They don't want him to go away. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 14, Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Maybe your King James says mansions. That's not a good translation. It's probably better said uh, that it is more like a, a wayside inn, compartments that are being prepared. A nice place, place that he's preparing. If it weren't so, Jesus said, I would have told you, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, look at verse 3, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Foundational text. The Thessalonians also were ignorant of what had happened to those who had died before Jesus' returned. Some of their brothers and sisters had died, and they were wondering if they would miss the coming of the Lord, those that had already died. And so Paul wrote a letter to them. We have it as First and Second Thessalonians. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he made it very clear to them. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 says, We don't want you to be uninformed. Verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring, him, bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now, if you're here this morning and you're asleep, wake up right now. You haven't fallen asleep in Jesus. All right. What this is referring to is those that have died being followers of Jesus Christ. If that's you, if, you've, if you have friends, if you have family members, Paul's telling the church at, at Thessaloniki that, that if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God's going to bring with him those that have already died in Jesus. For this we say to you by the Lord of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those that have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. There's that Greek word. We translate it raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. We'll be with him there then at the point of the rapture. Ultimately, we will spend eternity with him uh, through the millennial kingdom. And then ultimately, as he sets up the new earth. Paul also talks about it in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verse 51. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. I love that word there. I tell you a mystery. In other words, some of these things I don't totally understand. I'm telling you a mystery, but I know this. We're not all going to sleep, but we're all going to be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this this perishable must must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. We believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And how quickly do we think it's going to take place? We think it's going to take place what? In the twinkling of an eye. All right, blink your eye. The rapture just happened. For those of you, by the way, who say, well, if I really find out and I believe that this is true, then, man, I'm going to, I'm going to fall to my knees and I'm going to confess Jesus as Lord. You're fast, right? It's a twinkling of an eye. All of this takes place. This event, the rapture, is so clearly taught in the Bible that it's all but impossible to deny. And I believe in the rapture because I believe in the gospel. I believe in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. The rapture is linked to his redemption. If there is no resurrection, 
If there is no resurrection from the dead, we've set it off and around here at Northwest. We have no reason to be here this morning. And dads, you should have stayed in the bed and let your kids fix you a nice breakfast and you should have just enjoyed your day. You are foolish for being here if there is no resurrection. But indeed, we do believe that there was a resurrection and as a result of Christ rising from the dead, that we will one day, those of us who have died in Christ, will be raptured to be with him. Now, there are various views on the timing of the rapture. And most disagreements in evangelical circles relating to the rapture involve the question of when the rapture occurs on the prophetic calendar. Uh, Some believe there's a mid-tribulational rapture, which is just as the term suggests, midway through the tribulation period, the rapture takes place. In other words, if you and I uh, are still alive, we will be raptured approximately three and a half years after that tribulation begins. Then there's a post-tribulational rapture, uh, which says that at the end of the tribulation, that is when the rapture will occur. And then there's a view that I find very confusing, but nonetheless, some hold to this view, is a partial rapture. Now, the idea of a partial rapture is, is really interesting. That's when uh, committed believers uh, go up in the first load, all right, right before the tribulation. And then if you're not as committed, uh, you don't have as many whizzy buttons as the next guy, and you get left for the second load, all right? That's the partial rapture view. Now, I don't totally get that. If we have a high view of the gospel and we understand that we are saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, it's not by works, lest any man should boast, I don't see how we have a partial rapture view. Now, that would just mean we're constantly competing to see whether we're going on first load or second load, all right? And I don't, I don't really... I don't really see the logic there. I think there's great logic, however, and this is why I told you earlier that I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. There's great logic in Scripture and great, I believe, scriptural support of why we believe that the church will not be here during the tribulation period of time. Here's why. I'm going to give you three reasons, just real quick. Number one, the Lord promised to deliver us. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10, It says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. Most Bible scholars believe that that's referring to that tribulation period of time. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And God says, I'm going to keep you. And so we believe that the Lord promised to deliver us. That's one reason why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Number two is that Christians are not appointed to wrath. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Christians aren't appointed to wrath. That's not for us. And then here is what I believe to be the greatest evidence for a pre-tribulational rapture. Why, if you are here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, why you will not go through the tribulation is that the church is absent in Revelation chapter 4 to 18. Remember I told you that the book of of Revelation is in great chronological order. It just walks us right through the end end times events. And you see the church mentioned in chapter 1. You see the letters that are written to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. And then all of a sudden in chapter 4, the church isn't mentioned again until chapter 18. And so I I believe that there's a reason for that. It's because the church is not present during that period of time, that the church has been raptured. Now here's what I want you to hear again. Whether we believe we're raptured before the millennial kingdom, 
Before the tribulation, as I said earlier, we must understand that the scripture is very clear that Jesus is coming back and get this, that we are eternal beings. There's the theological view out there called annihilationism, which basically means that when you die, you just simply cease to exist. You just go back to dust, you cease to exist, you enjoyed your time here on the earth, hopefully you made the most of it, but you've died, you've, you've gone, it's over. I don't believe that. I believe emphatically that we are eternal beings, that we will exist someplace for all of eternity, all of us. When Jesus was comforting his disciples, I read it to you a few moments ago before the crucifixion, he made it very clear that he was going to prepare a place for them, that there was a place where they were ultimately going to go. And if you really believe that Jesus had come back at any moment, it's going to affect the way that you live your life. You're going to want to do everything that you can to prepare for that day. I want to give you five things just real quickly, that I think that you will do if you believe in the imminent return of Jesus. Number, number one is, you'll make sure that you're ready. You're going to make sure of your salvation. You're going to make sure that you're trusting in Christ alone, that you have put that stake in the ground that says, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I have placed my trust completely in Christ alone. It is nothing that I have done that I will do. It is Christ alone. You're going to make sure of that if you believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Paul said to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he said that we are to examine ourselves to make sure that we're in the faith. We're to test ourselves. Not everyone is going to be raptured at the beginning of the tribulation period of time, only those who are trusting in Christ alone. In fact, in Luke chapter 17, Jesus said, I tell you, on that night there's going to be two in bed. One's going to be taken, and the other one's going to be left. There's going to be two women that are grinding at the same place. One's going to be taken, one's going to be left. There's going to be two men who are going to be in a field. One is going to be taken, and one is going to be left. If we love Jesus, and if we believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ, we are going to be prepared for that moment. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior or somehow you think that, well, I, I probably will be just good enough and, and one day when I stand before Jesus, somehow he'll just say, just come on in, you, you, you were pretty good. This whole idea of, of the tribulation, this whole idea of the rapture, it ought to put fear into your hearts because Jesus is not going to tarry forever. He is going to come back. We believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Number two. If you believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ, you're going to share your story. You're going to share the gospel with others. That's why we've been left. I've said it to you often. There's one thing uh, that we can't do in heaven uh, that we can do here on earth. And that is we can't tell people the good news of the gospel. At that point, it is eternally too late. Everything else we do, we can do better. You say, well, man, we have a great worship experience up here and I love looking at these people on the stage, and at least a couple of them are nice looking. Some of the other ones, not so much. But I love doing that. That's a great experience, right? Let me just tell you, when you get to heaven, and that heavenly band starts playing, and they're playing instruments you've never heard of, you've never seen before, and Jesus is sitting there, and, and okay, there's going to be, your worship experience is going to be literally out of this world, all right? 
You can do that better in heaven. You could study the Bible. I mean, in, in, in heaven, I don't need to read the Bible. I'm going to sit down, I'm going to talk to Jesus. I'm going to sit down, I'm going to talk to Paul, who wrote a good portion of the. The one thing that I can't do is share my story, share the gospel. If you believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ, you'll do that. Number three, you'll live a holy life. You'll live a holy life. Why? So that you're ready, so that you're prepared. Those of us that believe in a literal rapture, uh, I myself have often thought, wow, have you ever been doing something and thought, man, I hope Jesus doesn't come back right now. You're like, this wouldn't be my best moment. You ever thought about that? I'm simple. I think about these things, right? And then other times I've said sometimes as I'm riding down dusty roads in Africa with African pastors in a, in a van that should not be allowed to roll down the road and, and they're taking me down and I'm going, I could see Jesus very, very soon. I oftentimes think, Jesus, come now. Like this would be awesome. The next thing I'm standing in the presence of Jesus and he's going to go, that was really awesome what you were doing and where you were and what you were a part of. You'll live a holy life. You'll do the things that matter, the things that are count. If you believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ, then number four, I believe you'll serve. If you really believe that Jesus could come back today, you'll be busy doing the things that matter rather than simply living your life for yourself. And so many of us living in a town like Cary, North Carolina, can fall into such a trap of just simply living for ourselves. If we believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ, it ought to motivate us to serve and to get outside of our own little world and minister to people and make a difference in our world. And then lastly, I believe if you believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ, I believe that you will live your life with open hands. I really believe you'll live that way. I'll live that way. You say, well, what does that mean? Your life will be marked by generosity. If you believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ, if you believe that ultimately everything is going to be made new and nothing that you have right now is going to be significant, then you will live with your hands wide open. You won't be living for that car that you drove up in the parking lot. Because if the trumpet blows right now and we go, it's staying, right? Some heathen's going to be driving around, all right? They're going to come, they're going to hotwire the thing. It's going to be, all right? Your big bank account that you were going, man, I'm going to have quite the retirement. Somebody else is going to enjoy it. Eventually, they're going to figure out you're gone. Somebody else is going to enjoy it, all right? Those of you that are, dr- that are driving death traps out there, your transmission's just about ready to go out, and you're thinking, man, Jesus, if you're going to come back, do it now, because I don't have the money for a new transmission, all right? Live that way. I remember reading the story of one very wealthy woman, and she said, my goal is to die being overdrawn by $1 in my checking account. In other words, I don't want to leave anything. I want to invest everything for the things that really matter. If you believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ, you will live your life with open hands. Here's the conclusion of the whole series. Jerry and I have done this each week as we've closed. The series title is Hinges. What doors does this doctrine close for us? Two things real quickly. Number one, the fear of the world spinning out of control. You have to worry about that. Some of you spend so much of your time worrying about who's going to be elected president. <laughs> you just do. All right? I'm guaranteeing not many of you, I know at least a couple of you that like politics more than I do, but not many of you. I really enjoy the whole process. Right? I think most of them are corrupt. I think most of them aren't going to really do anything. They don't give a rip about any of us. Right? There's a few that do. All right? I enjoy all of that. But here's the thing. You don't need to be fearful about the future. 
Some of you are going to wake up in November 2016, I'm afraid, and you're going to go, oh my goodness, I can't believe that 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 person was elected president. I think you're going to do that. I meant to do that, by the way. Some of you are going to do that. And that's going to mean you do not have a proper understanding that God wrote the book. He knows the last chapter. He is the sovereign God of the universe. And he's got it all under control. And you're going to go, oh no, what happened? God's going, I don't know. I just, I took a little break and <laughs> now you got a president. That's not going to happen. That closes the door for us of a fear of the world spinning out of control. Number two, the idea that the greatest investment is right here. It closes that door. If you're buying into that, you do not believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ because you are living for this moment. That door is closed if you buy in to the most fundamental of all eschatological views, and that is that we believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. What doors does it open for us? You can have confidence that God wins. Despite the world's condition right now, despite all the things that we've seen happen in our world just this week, the, the depravity and the pain and the hurt and the disappointment that sin has caused, even in our world this week, in the end, God wins. And then secondly, life can be full, knowing that our time is short. As Randy Alcorn says in his book, The Treasure Principle, that we should live for the dot. Not live for the dot, but we live for the line, the long line of eternity. Don't get caught living for the dot. Eternity is long. This life here is very short. If you believe in the imminent return of Christ, you're going to live your life that way this week. It'll make a difference. It makes a difference. If you believe this is all there really is, then take the Epicurean viewpoint, which just says, I need to eat, drink, and be merry. I need to squeeze everything out of this moment because this is all there is. If you believe that, sad way to live life. If you believe... uh, Uh, in the idea that there is more to this life than just simply living and dying, that God's got a plan, and in the end, he wins, and we spend all of eternity with him in a place that he's prepared for us, going to prepare a place for us, then that's awesome. That's how it affects your life, and that's how doors open wide.